Uh, hey, everyone, it's Russ. Welcome to another episode of Women's Retirement Radio. Today is the third uh, in an ongoing series about caregiving, and I'm thrilled again to be joined by Lisa Kaufman and Laura Jalbert. Uh, hey, ladies, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having, for having us. us. Yeah, so today we want to kind of continue the conversation around uh, caregiving uh, and specifically the role of uh, caregiving as a spouse. So caring for a spouse that's dealing with um, dementia, mental impairment, uh, maybe physical, uh, recovering from an injury, whatever the situation may be. Um, and I think it's safe to say that uh, no one, while, while they can intellectually think about what it might be like to have to care for their spouse, um, I don't think many people plan for it in terms of like, this is, you know, at age 68 or 73, we, we plan to, to have a caregiving experience. So, um, and it can, it can really be a, a shock to the system, especially if you've done a good job of planning and thinking about your retirement and your kind of retirement years together. So I would love to hear your thoughts on um, this idea of how do you deal with uh, and we talked about a little bit in our last segment about this idea of evolution and this ongoing change, um, this kind of um, dynamic situation. But how do you make sure or how do you continue to care for yourself um, while you're caring for your spouse in this example? Laura, you want to go? Um, sure. So I, I think one of the first things that you can do um, together, if possible, but certainly on your own, is to acknowledge that this is not what I had, this is not what my expectation was. Um, I think that that is very powerful in itself um, because you are then separating the reality of what your current situation is from the expectation that perhaps you were um, attached to for a very long time. I know you know, I'm not yet retired, sadly, but I continue to daydream about what retirement will be like. And um, I think it's, you know, significant when you get there, and it's not what you plan. And so I think the very first piece of that is to say, is to acknowledge it, and, and to look at, you know, maybe even some grief around that, um, you know, because most people daydream about what it's like to be retired, um, for a long time before they get there. And I think once you get there, there may be some sadness that, oh boy, this is going to be different, um, some fear. Um, and so I think just just stopping and calling it out and taking a look at it is probably a great first step. Um, and like I say, if you can do so with your partner, if they're cognitively intact enough or um, you know, the uh, an, an illness is not so far progressed that you can have these conversations. I think it's very validating for both partners to be able to say, holy cow, uh, we just got one bad hand of poker here and we are going to have to, we're going to have to play this through. Mm-hmm. Um, Agreed. So just, so just starting with acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can see that being an important first step and, and one probably that gets um, skipped over a lot. Um, and I'd like to add, too, by the way, that, that even if you've got all your financial ducks in a row, whether you've got long-term care insurance in place or whether you've, you've prepared yourself to handle the financial responsibilities of, of caregiving, um, we're, we're talking more about the mental, emotional, psychological impacts, which can... Um, Oftentimes, I think be much more impactful than than even the financial um, considerations. So, um, so, so let's say that that the caregiver has acknowledged the situation. Um, maybe they've they've um, dealt with some level of grief. 
how can they, um, and let's assume for purposes of this conversation that you're caring for your spouse who's still at home for the moment, how can you be a, um, a supporting caregiver without losing your own personal identity, without losing, um, you know, losing grips with, you know, things that you like to do when, when you have the time, your personal interest, hobbies, things like that. Any, any thoughts on that? I have some thoughts. Um, I think that when you become a caregiver and you jump in, in totality, that that's when you risk losing your own identity. And just like when you're seeing a retirement approaching, if you haven't figured out how you're going to structure your day, retirement isn't going to look the way you maybe thought it would. The days start to run together. It's not unlike what we're all have been experiencing for two years that, you know, we're at home and sometimes don't get out of our pajamas or we don't shower and don't know what day it is because why bother? Um, you don't want to find yourself in this position of um, missing out on valuable opportunities because you weren't prepared. And it doesn't mean that you have to over prepare, but having a conversation, um, you know, with your, your wealth planner or a therapist or a friend or, you know, a colleague, somebody that you can start looking at, I'm going to have this chunk of time. Now my responsibilities have changed in whatever way they have. How are you going to adapt to that? And to make sure that you still do the things that you like to do, maybe not as much time, you may not have as much time, but it, you, you may have to schedule yourself in there. Put it on your calendar so that you make sure that you get your nails done if that's important to you, or you bake bread if that's important to you, um, or get to see grandchildren, whatever it is that you feel like you need to do that needs to be prioritized. You may not have a whole lot of time like you maybe once did, but making sure you still make some time in there once a week that you get that time for yourself. And that's where the team approach that we talked about in the last episode comes in so handy so that you have people who know your spouse and know how to take care of your spouse and that they are accepting of that care because that's a challenge as well. When they're, we talk about that at a whole other time when there's nobody else there and the caregiving bond is so strong that they won't allow anyone else to provide care. You don't want to get in that situation because you don't get a break. So you want to set things up for success so that you have some downtime to yourself to do the things that you like to do. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think one of the key components of getting to that place is making sure that you are communicating about what those things are and communicating to your support system, however small or large, right? Because we were talking about the team, how much of the team have you built for yourself? Well, maybe if you are suddenly thrust into caregiver role, you have not yet built much of the team, but if you have extended family, if you have uh, children, grandchildren, those kind of things, I think just communicating um, with everyone about the, the needs of the person you are caring for, but also your own needs mm -hmm. and making sure that those are considered a priority by you, but also by everyone. Because um, I think one of the things that we see is that caregivers then don't, um, don't 
fiercely protect that self time. Um, it slowly, if they started out with some time on their own, it tends to erode away into, into more caregiving responsibilities and less self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, if you can communicate from the beginning with your support system that like, it's really important that I get these walks in, or it's really important that I do whatever it is once a week. And I'm going to need your help to do it because I may not need it for the first year, but you know, if this were to change and I couldn't leave him or her alone, I would need help. Um, and to be, and to start looking at how to protect that time from from the very beginning um, by communicating with those who are already in your in your support system. I want to throw an example out there, if I may, if we have time. Yeah, please do. Um, I have seen on occasion where the family caregiver, who has always been the spouse, um, finally gets to a place where they cannot take care of their loved one at home anymore, which they were late coming to that decision. And when they've placed their loved one and oftentimes it's a nursing home because it's gone too long. And then they still go every day and do all of the things that the people that they're paying to do. Uh, so they're paying for stuff and they're doing it anyway. And then there's resentment and exhaustion and overwhelm and anger and all those other delightful emotions because they're not releasing control because they don't trust that anybody's going to do it the way they would do it, which is probably true, but it doesn't mean it's not going to get done or that the individual's going to be safe. Um, And I feel like they're giving up their lives by going and sitting in the nursing home and making sure that they fed their husband lunch every seven days a week. Okay. Well, here's, they're safe and cared for. Why aren't you doing some of the things you want to be doing? Because they were a caregiver for so long, they've lost that. Mm -hmm. So it's a slippery slope. And now, you know, when you have that care in place, you may not need too many days off in the beginning, but you may get to this point where it's beyond what you're physically able to do. And it's okay to take yourself back when somebody else is providing that level of care. Yeah. But, you know, I think in that, and I think we may be thinking of um, the same kinds of clients, Lisa, Mm -hmm. in that that case, one of the greatest, one of the greatest challenges for those caregivers though, is relinquishing that control and, and getting okay with, good enough and not, and not perfect. And also I think those are the same folks who may have lost perspective that, that they're no longer perfect as caregivers either. They can't do anymore yet when they do, you know, once someone's placed or whatever, and you see them um, continually, you know, also provide care that they're paying for. um, They sort of, disabled the the community itself from from doing what they've paid for they try to micromanage and control every piece of it and and to what end and to what end is you know is their loved one going to get any better care are they going to feel any better you know if lunch was served at 12 o'clock versus 12 10 uh, you know, in the and so I think that sometimes that relinquishing the control piece requires a lot of support and help. Um, sometimes more education, even about the the illness or the disease process. Um, but sometimes that emotional support of just um, of just yes. letting that go. Right. I see a therapist for the caregiver as being so crucial because 
they can help them maybe at times refine themselves so that they do start and maybe have accountability to do the things that they used to do or want to do or haven't done um, and take more responsibility for their own structured time and their own enjoyment of things instead of continuing to do what they were doing, except it's, it's no longer necessary um, and to their own detriment, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Before you mentioned uh, the word control, Laura, uh, which I know we, we talked about in our last segment, that was what was coming to mind for me. And I think I think the combination of control and emotions. So like I've even heard in my family, like, um, don't you ever dump me in a nursing home and forget about me. Um, and, and that's probably the mildest of some of the things that are said along those lines. And so there's, I've got to imagine a huge amount of guilt or shame that comes with putting someone where they need to be to get the, the level of care they need, but then uh, relinquishing the responsibility or control to, to be there because they don't want their, their patient spouse to feel like they've, they've been abandoned or forgotten or things like that. And I'm not suggesting there's an easy, easy solution for that one, but I've got to imagine that uh, certainly makes things even more tricky uh, in these types of circumstances. Well, it really does. And I think one of the things that is important, and I mean, certainly that I validate for family caregivers is that your job is to make sure that they are cared for Mm -hmm. and to make sure that they are healthy and safe as best you can. It is not necessarily to provide those things yourself with your own body and mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes families really need that permission because they always are um, forced or, or you know, mom made them promise uh, to never place. And I don't think that's fair. That's not I don't think that's fair. Kept. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. So that's, that's a difficult promise. So you may want to shift what the promise is to something that's more reasonable and realistic. And one of the things I used to say in support groups is you will always be the primary caregiver, whether you are the chief Heine wiper or bath giver, um, you still get to lose all the sleep. So nobody's going to take that away from you, but you don't have to physically be providing the care. It doesn't diminish your role in any way. One thing I'd like to touch on, which which you both kind of mentioned um, directly or indirectly in our conversation today is um, setting expectations and planning ahead. So like Lisa, you mentioned, um, you know, finally making the decision to put your spouse into uh, into a care facility, but maybe having waited too late and it being a nursing home as opposed to assisted living or or something not you know quite um, on that end of the spectrum. Um, Laura, you talked about setting expectations as it relates to control and what kind of care uh, expectations are there, things like that. Um, I know the, I think I know the answer to this, but when, when is it too early to start planning for having these conversations, thinking about um, how you or how your spouse wants to be cared for in the event that they find themselves in a situation like this? You know, I think it's never too early to have those conversations. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. You would have surprised it's... me if you had said otherwise, but but go ahead. Yeah, I think it's never too early. I think, um, you know, and I know at least in my life um, and probably similarly for Lisa, um, I mean, when you know of a situation or you've learned of a situation, um, one of the things that, um, you know, I tend to do is to say out loud, my goodness, if I were in this situation, 
this is what I would want. But, you know, also getting getting those documents in order that it, at the at the bare minimum, tell others what you want and tell which others are supposed to be making the decision. Um, but there's a lot of things that those documents don't cover, um, you know, and so I think having the conversations and maybe finding other ways to um, to write those things down or to discuss those with your people who are important to you um, so that they know, um, because, you know, goodness, anyone could have a, you know, a debilitating car accident any day. And would you know, you know, what I wanted? Um, well, I mean. Yes, some people would know what I wanted because I've discussed it. But um, I think anytime that there's an there's a discussion of of a particular situation, you you could have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think the thing that I feel like I want to share is that. I've run into folks who didn't want to have these discussions for a variety of reasons, fear-based, usually fear. If they talk about it, it's going to come true. Mm. Um, Fear that they're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Just a lot of reasons why people don't want to. And then I've run into folks that um, the, the elder doesn't want to have that discussion because they don't want to be a burden on their kids. And then I'm like, hang on a second, not making a decision is a decision. And not planning ahead because you don't want to burden your kids when the, you know, everything falls from beneath you. Now you're a burden because you didn't have the discussion. You didn't plan. You didn't sign documents. You didn't do any of those things. Now you are a problem. Mm-hmm. So planning ahead and having these conversations and making sure that people really do know what you want is not where the burden lies. That's just being a responsible, caring, compassionate, good communicator. And it's all, those are good things. And while the family may not always want to talk about this stuff, you know, these are fierce conversations. They're important conversations. And seeing that the holidays are coming up, and I think we mentioned this last week, this is a great time to start gently dabbling in in these really serious conversations. And maybe while it's not a crisis, like humor, again, it can be a good place to lighten what it is instead of waiting till it's a crisis. And now we don't know what to do. I think so. And also revisiting some of those expectations, perhaps, because if you're at the Thanksgiving table and someone says to you, you're never putting me in a home, I think it's okay to say, you know what, that may not be realistic. You're not living with me, (laughs) right? That may, but that may be a time to just float the idea out there that perhaps there are some unrealistic expectations about, because you can say things like, well, do you have long-term care insurance? Well, have you thought about how you're going to pay for the care you do need? Well, Mm -hmm. what happens? What happens? And so, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, blow up your whole family meal with (laughs) with a nursing home fight, but I am saying, but I am saying, you know, if you hear an unrealistic expectation, like I never or always, or I, I think it's an important time to just, you know, again, just discuss those expectations and say, you know, there are sometimes times where it can't be avoided and just let that be there in the room and just let it sit for a minute. 
Um, it's right, okay. Folks. All right, folks, you heard it here from Laura. When <laughs> you're sitting down Thanksgiving for Thanksgiving meal. or your holiday meals with your family, that, that is the time to hit the hit the nail between the or hit it between the eyes with the uh, with yeah. the big questions. No, I I I I appreciate I appreciate both your comments, and I, I agree that um, coming from a a planning profession, um, you know, it's never never too early to plan or have conversations or get things out in the sunlight and just you know talk mm-hmm. about it. So um, so I they're think less that's a, scary, frankly. I think yeah. that people avoid these conversations from fear, and then when you start opening up that conversation, suddenly it's not so scary anymore. So I love that you kind of said shed the light on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that's a great place to wrap it up uh, today. Um, so I appreciate both uh, Lisa and Laura joining me for Thanks this for conversation us. and uh, look forward yeah. to continuing it in, uh, in the next segment. So um, everyone listening, watching, thanks for joining us. And we will uh, catch you on the next episode of Women's Retirement Radio. It's Russ again. And before you go, I want to provide a brief disclosure. You should consult a financial advisor familiar with the specific circumstances of your unique financial situation before making any financial decisions. Nothing in this broadcast constitutes a solicitation for the sale or purchase of any securities. Any mentioned rates of return are historical or hypothetical in nature and are not a guarantee of future returns. I'm a financial advisor and an investment advisor representative of Wealthcare Capital Management, LLC an SEC-registered investment advisor based in Richmond, Virginia. The views discussed in this podcast are my own and may not be consistent with or represent those of Wealthcare Capital Management.